Hello and welcome to the Acrolibrary.com podcast. My name is Ben Lowry, broadcasting from Bristol in the United Kingdom. And the purpose of this podcast is for me to interview acrobats, gymnasts, flexibility experts, yogis, hand balancers, and everything in between. Today's guest is Kit Lachlan. Kit is an authority on the subject of stretching and strengthening, and he teaches workshops all over the world. He calls his approach stretch therapy, and he's developed it over the last 30 years. He's written three best-selling books. The titles include Overcome Neck and Back Pain, Stretching and Flexibility, and Stretching in Pregnancy. Sit tight, enjoy the show. Kit Lachlan, how are you doing, Kit? Ah, oh, Ben, great. And may I say it's an honour to be invited to talk and, and and it's a privilege and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to your guests. Well, thank you. That's wonderful. And it's a relatively new podcast. You're actually episode eight and I've been trying to sort of speak to a range of different people in this field. And um, a friend of mine uh, that I used to live with, actually, an old housemate, attended one of your weekend seminars when you visited England. I think it was a, it was a few years ago, I think. Um, okay. I'm sure you pr probably wouldn't remember the chap. Him and his um, partner attended your class. And why don't you give us um, an overview of what it is you do, Kit? Well, let's see. Well, firstly, being episode number eight, you know, that's immensely um, fortuitous from a Chinese astrological perspective that there is no luckier number than the number eight. Um, so I'm just I'm just reveling in that for a moment before I answer your question. Um, when, be <laughs> when people come to our workshops, generally they think they're coming for something specific. For example, if one of your acrobatic people is having trouble with the pancake or side splits or something like that, they will come along, um, they attend, even though it's in a group setting, we can see very quickly um, from the very early stages in the workshop exactly what people's limitations are simply from how they move. Now this isn't obvious, but in our system, every position or every movement is both potential diagnosis and also potential treatment. And by that I mean if a particular movement pattern is not present in the body or it's segmented in some way or it's not smooth or in fact there's just insufficient range of movement, we can be quite specific and prescribe solutions for each of those different aspects as they manifest. And so um, very quickly into the proceeding, normally by mid-morning on the first day, each of the individuals in that class, and we usually don't take many more than about 25 people, although sometimes we can go a tiny bit more, um, each of those people are actually being given individual instruction in the group setting, which is something that is unique to our system. So let me, ex let me illustrate with an example. There's a, muscle, there's a muscle in the hip called piriformis. You've probably read about it. Um, and it's responsible on the current chiropractic research, piriformis syndrome, as it's called, is responsible for about 60% of all sciatica. And a lot of people, including people that are in the fitness world, in the acrobatics world, in the gymnastics world, have this problem. And the, the tragedy is that many people go along to their doctors or other practitioners and they'll get diagnosed with this problems or this or something else. And in fact, it's actually a muscle in the hip that is creating all of that problem. So to get back to the main point, 
in a class situation, we can see straight away what people's levels of range of movement are with respect to this particular pose. And so what I would do at that juncture is I would show the group, and I usually have one or two assistants with me as well, I would show the group three or four, perhaps even five options of different looking exercises, all of which actually work that same part. And what the attendee does is he or she chooses which level or which level of difficulty she thinks she can actually do and they get into that position and then we modify it from there so even though it's a group teaching situation people are getting that individual tuition and that's gold i think yes of course and what's your lifestyle like do you constantly travel around the world teaching these workshops around the world how much time do you spend doing that well, um, the year before last, I was actually on the road for five months of the year. And so that is, I mean, when and that also included a massive national schedule here too. We taught in Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney, Hobart. We didn't make it across to Perth. That's actually a four-hour flight for us or four-and-a-half-hour flight. Um, and so in that particular year, I was teaching most weekends, yes. And I was overseas. <clears throat> I taught in Canada, taught in the U.S., taught in Singapore, taught in Hong Kong, and in Berlin too, I think. But what we're doing now, as my body is aging and telling me that it actually doesn't like being on the road all that much anymore, and also because I've become, so, I've become a mad keen boater and fisherman, um, Olivia, my partner, and she's the one who organizes everything, um, she has said, okay, we're, we've got a schedule for this year, and it's published, it's on the website already. Next year, we're definitely going to do probably something less than half the workshops we're offering this year. So I, I guess, look, it, it might sound like a shameless plug, but if anyone has been thinking about doing our work, and you're in, you're in London, uh, and which we come to London every year, I have an EU passport, by the way, um, it's actually a British passport. I was born in your lovely country, although I left when I was about 18 months old and didn't actually make it back until I ran my first workshop there, which is probably five years ago. Right. Anyway, that's a very roundabout way of answering your question. Um, I have been spending a lot of time on the road, but I want to spend less time on the road. Let's jump back in time, Kit, and talk about how all this began for you. I was reading your book and... Um, uh, just off the top of my head, I, I, I seem to remember you started at a young age uh, doing dance and gymnastics and, and perhaps mm. yoga. And that was what got you started, um, you, you know, uh, specializing in flexibility. Um, yeah. Tell us about it, how it started of, for you. It's kind of a funny story. Well, at least it's amusing to me now when I think back on it. But what actually started this for me, the, the, the sort of smack in the head moment uh, was when I was a competitive middle distance runner at the age of 27, so a bit older than some of my um, colleagues, but I had zero flexibility. And this really came home to me one afternoon. We were doing interval training. We were doing 60-second 400 metres. I don't know whether you've ever done any running in, in your life, but 60-second 400 metres sounds desperately slow. But actually, when you do 10 or 15 of them, it's actually a lot of work. Anyway, so we were doing, we did that interval training session. It was at Sydney University where our interval training was done. And at the end of that session, I was bending over trying to touch my toes and someone took a photograph of me and my fingers were reaching just below my knees and my back was bent in a really strong curve as well. So in other words, zero hamstring flexibility whatsoever. And I'd had lots of problems in the past too as a runner. I'd had Achilles tendonitis and anyway, lots and lots of aches and pains. And someone took a photograph of me trying to touch my toes. And they, he, this guy thought it was so funny. They put it up on the gym wall. I used to train in a, a weight training gym as well. And underneath he wrote, Rubber Man. Now, 
of course, you know, nowadays I can't, I can hardly even conceive of that. But at the time, it was, it was truly a moment. I looked at that. I saw the photograph on the wall, and this is in the days of, of printing, no digital photography in those days. So we'd actually taken the trouble to print it and stick it up on the wall and write something underneath it. And I looked at my body in this position, and I suddenly realised that I was locked. Seriously, and I know this sounds a bit dramatic to say this, but I was locked in a prison of my own making. All of the Olympic lifting training that I'd done many years before and all the running training that I was then presently doing, all of those things had given my body what I now call a postural signature and a movement pattern that I now consider to be extremely undesirable. But that was what it was at the time. So at the ripe old age of 27, um, I took myself off to dance classes every morning before work. Now, just imagine, these classes were what they call limber classes, and I don't know whether the same language is used in the UK, so let me explain what they are. Limber classes are the classes that anyone who's enrolled in a dance school will actually use for the first hour and a half of a day to basically prepare their body for the day's classes. And they'll go through a full range of movement of all of the joints of the body. Most of it's done on the floor. Some are done standing, but mostly on the floor. And there was actually a live piano player, believe it or not, in those days, a lovely old lady called Peggy. And so there I was in the middle of this group of impossibly limber young things, you know, typically 16 to 19 years of age, who, when they walked into the room, would slide into side splits and then tell me how stiff they were that day. Um, and, you know, I could I could not touch my toes. So in that that was the next experience where while I was watching these people who have the, the 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 bodies that have flexibility literally like a you know a mountain lion or a cheetah or something like that, fantastically beautiful to look at, and to see, I realised that my body simply didn't work that way. And this is the deeper point: I realised that the experience of living in my own body was likely very different to their experience of living in their own body, and that's what got me started. I realized then I wanted some of that and that became my quest the other thing to to bear in mind here and I don't know whether your flexibility was acquired when you were a child Ben but the vast majority of people in the gymnastics and dance world became flexible when they were kids and the proposition the problem set would be more formally accurate the problem set of how to take an adult body and make it flexible compared to the problem set of how to uh, make a child's body flexible is a virtually non-intersecting problem set. The child's body is much more malleable, their fascial structure is much softer, and this is the key thing that we found, which you won't read anywhere, their idea of what they can do is not set in the mind the way it is in an adult. I, if I had a dollar for every time I'm working with someone and they say, oh, I can't do this or I can't do that, and the evidence, of course, to them is obvious and, and clear because they're in the position trying to do it, but they don't realise that there are keys that they can use to unlock that restriction, I could retire. Most people, as adults, the real restriction in their body is not their fascial structure or their joint structure or the length of their muscles, and I'll explain why I know this to be true in a moment. It's actually a map of their range of movement capacities in an area of the brain called the somato, somatosensory cortex, and that provides the genuine limitation on movement. Now, this is how we know this is true. A friend of mine is Robert Schleip. He's the, the guru, one of the two gurus in the world of fascia. 
And the last time I caught up with Robert, it was actually on a workshop of his, and I remember him calling this out. He said, Kit, you'll love this story. Listen to this. He said, I should, I should mention, Robert Schleip uh, runs the fascial research unit at Ulm University in Germany. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said to me, yes, Schleip, S-C-H-L-E-I-P from memory, and he said to me, we, he's a rolfer as well as a, an academic researcher in anatomy, he said we, meaning his colleagues, two or three other rolfers uh, um, managed to anaesthetise one of their colleagues and they tested his range of movement before they put him under the anaesthetic. And I should mention too that the fascial research unit is part of a large university and there's a medical school on campus and they have access to, you know, their labs and other things. And so they talk one anaesthetist into anaesthetising their colleague. So here's the thing. This guy had a particular range of movement, which in our terms would be exactly consistent with his postural signature. That is to say, his idea of what he can do and what he can't do. And they measured his you know, range of movement at the hip flexors, range of movement at hamstring, shoulder range of movement, and so on and so forth, spinal range of movement. They did all those standard tests that the, that the Rolfers do, and they anaesthetized him. And for an hour and a half or two hours, they rolfed the hell out of him. And that, and they thought, well, that's, that'll be interesting to see what happens when he comes out at the anaesthetic. He came out at the anaesthetic, and this is the beautiful thing. This is the gold. His range of movement had not changed one measurable millimeter. And Robert said, and this is accurate, he said, this plays right into a conjecture that you've had for many years. He said, if the mind is not involved in the change, the change did not happen. Now, this is, this is profound, Ben, because the average person has a, such a strong belief system of what they can and can't do. It's actually that belief system that stops them. And there's another piece of information that's critical to understand, too, in, in the anaesthetized um, subject experiment. When that guy was on the and under anesthesia on the table, they were able to put his legs in front splits and side splits, and they were able to do a full backbend with his body. But there was no pain in his body when he came out of anesthesia, but those ranges of movement were simply inaccessible to him once he was conscious. Now, don't you find that interesting? That is fascinating. So, in, in other words, his body and his muscles have physically got the ability to relax and lengthen into those extreme splits and back bends. But as soon as the mind comes back online, the, the, the limitations and restrictions come back online. And, and exactly. The, the, that is incredible. I mean, I was kind of aware uh, of the the link between, you know, the mental, emotional and our physiology, but I didn't realize it was to that degree. That's, that's surprising even to me. Well, it's a very interesting thing. Neurophysiology is full of this talk. And, and you know, some of the, how should we say, the more out fringe work in, in these research areas does suggest that literally everything is in the mind. I don't actually subscribe to that. Here's a, here's a classic example. I've got a glass of water on the table in front of me and I know from past experience that if I want that water to stay in the glass, the opening has to face the ceiling. There's no other way for that to work. And so it doesn't matter what I think about that or what explanatory framework I adduce to explain why it is that the water is held in the glass or, and it doesn't matter whether I'm talking about water in a glass in Australia or whether I'm talking about kava in a coconut shell on some Pacific island, there are certain ways this world that we live in is organised and you cannot actually change that by wanting it to be different. 
So, so I mean, this this is profoundly important too, because there are some people you'll read in the literature who will say things like, "Oh, well, that is all in the mind." But I will never be six feet tall. I'm five foot ten, I think, or five foot ten and a half, and that is that is reality. Wishing myself, or wanting myself, or willing myself to be six feet tall will have zero effect. On the other hand. There are huge numbers of restrictions that we experience as actual physical experiences in the human body, which are experienced as actual limitations, which are in fact anything but. And the whole of our system is nothing more than a hundred techniques to unlock that restriction momentarily so that the person with the restriction can experience that new freedom, that new range of movement, that new state of relaxation, and if it's incorporated reasonably often into one's daily movement patterns, then it will stick, and in six months' time, you will not recognise yourself. Wow. I do find that profound. So, so in other words, we underestimate the degree to which our range of motion is controlled by the brain. Uh, look, let me, let me interrupt you there. I'm, I'm a terrible interrupter, sorry. But there's a critical thing to understand this restriction that I'm talking about is absolute. That's how profound it is. And I had a guy, uh, This is uh, and he's, he's a friend now. He won't mind me telling the story. But um, I said to this guy on a workshop once, we were doing some strengthening work as well, and there's an exercise a lot of people want to do called the pistol or the single leg squat. It's called in gymnastics. And you know the exercise. You hold one leg out in front of you or hold it up in, in front of you straight or bent. It doesn't really matter. You mm. squat down on one leg and you, and you stand back up. Yeah. And, and this guy, it was only on a break. I mean, it was a lunchtime break and I was rushing off to, to get something to eat. But he said to me, look, he said, I just can't do this movement. And and he went on, he talked to me for five minutes or ten minutes about how much practicing he'd been doing, how he'd done all the preparation moves for it, all the rolling versions of it and blah, blah, blah. But he said, the fact is I still can't do this. So I said, okay, well, let's just approach it this way. Now, just squat, just let yourself down into the position negatively. And he held his foot out to the front and went down into a single leg squat in the bottom position. And then I just looked at him. I said, now, just pop back up. And he stood back up. And he was so shocked by that experience. He went white. And I said, I said, Andy, you can do this. You just think that you can't do that. And because you think that you can't do that, you can't actually do it. And then he went outside. He just he didn't talk to me. He went outside in a state of shock and he got his wife to record him. He did five perfect single leg squats on each leg. And I'm not exaggerating. His life changed dramatically in that moment. Um, and he, he has literally made himself since then. It was the most extraordinary experience for him. Now, I, it wasn't just because I told him. I'd actually got him down into the position. He said that he couldn't do a negative either. You see? Mm, There's see. a couple of little bits of the story that I missed out, but he lowered himself into a perfect negative and he was balanced in the bottom position and so he was stunned, so discombobulated by the fact that he just let himself down into it, which is a negative, right? And we all know that we're stronger in a negative. And I said, now just pop yourself up, but I said it in a matter-of-fact kind of a way and there was some trust there by that point, I suppose, and he just popped straight up without thinking about it. So your and certainty that suddenly, he would be able to do it kind of overruled his doubt that he could do it? Well, I knew he could from what I'd seen him doing before. He had the requisite ankle flexibility, requisite um, hip, ability, hip flexibility. He had the – there were no reasons why he couldn't do it. 
And I can't remember what he told me, what he'd done in the way of preparation, but he might have told me about um, some other feats of strength that he could do, and I can't, I can't bring that to mind now. It's not important. The thing is, in that moment, he had the deep and, for him, um, absolutely, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, unshakable belief. He was absolutely certain that he couldn't do the movement, and then literally two or three seconds later, he was doing it, and that was such a shock that literally rewired his perspective on all of these things. And since then, I'll, I'll also add this, he had an absolutely terrible pancake when I first met him. He couldn't even sit up straight you know, with a straight back and straight legs, let alone bend forward and put his chest on the floor. Um, and he, he, in the last two years, or it might be two and a half years now, has literally remade himself on the basis of the single experience, and he has truly superior flexibility now. And he, he would have been, when I met him, he would have been 30 or 31, and he worked in the financial sector, so a lot of sitting, but he'd been also doing a lot of um, coach summer gymnastic strength training as well. Um, anyway, that's just a, there are, we have literally hundreds of examples um, like that. And it, there's nothing, I would say, there's nothing exceptional about this except that we don't see it very often. And the reason we don't see it very often is people just simply do not understand what keys they need to put into the, which locks in order to unlock this particular range of movement. And I don't want to sound mystical here. I mean, everything that, that I talk about is, I mean, most of it's available free on YouTube. We're not, I'm not just touting for people to come to workshops. We have a whole range of Vimeo pay download programs, which are dirt cheap. I think they're 15 or 20 bucks. Um, they're all long programs, like a couple of hours long. They have 20 or 25 exercises in them. They're all shot in high-definition video, multi-camera angles, you know, good quality audio, all that kind of thing, because I'm an ex-television director and filmmaker, so our programs have to be on at least good on the technical side. But the fact is, Ben, I'm, what am I now? I'm 64 years of age. My flexibility is better than most 25-year-olds, um, and my body doesn't look 65 years old. It looks just look like, I don't know, you'd have to ask someone else, but if you watch my videos, you'll see what it looks like. And I can do all sorts of things that I couldn't do when I was, when I was 25, let alone 35, 45, or 55, and it's just a long, gradual process. Um, and, the, and what has happened, which is very interesting to me personally, and there's a very good thread on our forums about this, that is to say the difference between range of movement and muscular tension, which was started by my partner, Olivia. And the fact is, for someone that's become flexible as a child or teenager, the way gymnasts and dancers do, they can have exceptional range of movement and still be incredibly tense. Now, Olivia is an example of someone who is quite tense. Um, but my body, uh, well, I can do quite a few gymnastic moves too, not at any kind of a high level or anything, but lots of things that the average person can't do. For example, I was doing some wall handstands the other day and supporting myself on one arm for 10 seconds or so and then switching across to the other arm, holding that for 10 seconds or so, and I did that for probably a minute and a half. Um, again, not not a, not a no, no kind of no feet to a hand balance. It would be a warm-up exercise, but that's not the point. The average person at my age couldn't even throw themselves up against a wall, let alone do any of those other things. And I'm, I'm not making a fetish of this. So there's nothing special in my view about being able to do things at a relatively um, old age because my deep belief is, and certainly I've, I've seen evidence in other people in the, the journey that I've been on in the last 64 years, if you do certain things on an infrequent, irregular basis, but do certain things from time to time, your body simply does not age the way we think is normal, and normal, of course, is what most people do. That's how we determine normal, right? It's one 
it's where the, the bulk of a, of, a, of a standard distribution sits, where roughly 70% of the population sits is the technical definition of normal in the statistical world. Um, the fact is that most people, when they get to 40 or 50 or 60, are not actually doing any of these things, and as a result, they can't do those things. But does that mean that they can't acquire them? Absolutely not. Um, in fact, the guy, when we were running our classes at the university, we used to run... I should actually add that note to, as a bit of a, an, an aside, but we have taught over 30,000 students while we were at the university, and since we've closed our facility at the university, which we ran there for 27 years, we've taught about 30,000 students overall. And I remember one guy in this in a class that we used to call the monkey gym class, which was a combination of bodyweight exercises and flexibility, Ron his name is, he at the age of 72, having started with absolutely no um, flexibility or strength attributes, in fact he's a lawyer, um, and, and he had the flexibility of a house brick and all sorts of back problems and blah, blah, blah. But uh, I guess it would have been three years, maybe four years after starting working with us. And look, it could have been more. I'm not sure, but it's just something like that. He has the best handstand line of anyone in the group. Mm. So you, you just can't say. It, it's a question of whether or not you stick to things. And I guess another big thing is you, you in your journey, it's absolutely essential that you don't injure yourself in any kind of permanent way. And it is possible to do that. But most injuries you recover from. And, and also, I suppose I would have to be honest and say, you, do, you don't know how far to go in anything until you've hurt yourself. Once you have hurt yourself, you know that is actually a physical limit that you don't want to push through without those consequences. And so for some people, we have to actually give them a bit of a, you know, gentle kick up the date because they're not actually, they're not inclined to push themselves hard enough. But many people also need dialing back. They need to be told, look, just because you can do planche training five days a week doesn't mean that you should be or that your joints will, you know, appreciate it. It is definitely a sensible thing to plan in some rest periods and not to go as hard as you can on every training session. But, you know, you know, it's like with young guys, they're actually very hard to control. And so basically we say at one day when they walk into the gym and they've got these limp or the shoulders not working right, we just look at them and say, well, so how's that working for you? They normally get the message after that and then start thinking about actually listening to what's happening inside their body rather than how they're looking. You know what I mean? Yes, I do know what you mean. And actually, um, that rings very true. Recently, I've been straining my lower back, um, not badly, not seriously, but just a strain that kind of takes a week to sort of feel better again. And um, what's, what's, the what's the activity, Ben, that you're doing that you think leads up to that? I think it's uh, I, I think it's both. I, it, it first trained when I was doing uh, backflips into a foam pit. And by the way, I'm a beginner gymnast, so my, yeah. my technique is is basic. And I, I think I was flinging myself into it a little bit too aggressively. Um, and also, mm. I do weightlifting as well, deadlifting. And I think um, either one of those two things, uh, perhaps both, contributed to it. I'm not sure. But I'm in a, yeah. I'm, I'm currently in a position where I'm having to. Um, you know, think uh, think about being a bit more intelligent with how I'm treating my back, you know. Well, a um, couple of things here. Um, the, if you're throwing, <clears throat> it depends on what your form is like. Excuse me, I have to cough. <clears throat> now, if you're an ex-gymnast, then presumably when you do that particular acrobatic movement, you're not actually extending your lumbar spine very much at all, are you? You're launching yourself and then turning around in the air and then landing. Is that correct? Well, I think that's what I was doing wrong, Kit. I think I was um, launching into too much of a backbend, which I, th I yes. think was the incorrect technique. Yeah. Well, 
My suggestion would be get onto our um, YouTube channel and download the hip flexor exercises because if you try to launch yourself into too strong a backbend and you don't have the length in your hip flexors, then the pelvis can't tilt on the thighs. And what happens, and we see this in backward bending, whether it's in a yoga class or gymnastics schools or acrobatics or pole world or anything, the vast majority of people do all of their um, backward bending in the lumbar spine. You want to move it out of the lumbar spine into the middle and upper back, and you want the pelvis to be able to tilt backwards itself on the legs, which in fact in very few people body's case that that is actually what happens but when you loosen the hip flexors all backward bending is simply done at a lower tension level I mean, it's something it is an absolutely tangible thing in fact generally speaking when we're talking about backward bending whether it's um the full cobra or whether it's chakrasana and yoga or you know all the other things that one can do with the spine and i should actually add most people don't know this but the spine has over twice the range of movement in extension than it does in flexion and I'm not talking about contortionists here. I'm talking about when you measure, if you put a piece of cardboard in between your teeth and then measure the movement of that piece of cardboard in respect of the sacrum, the very part of the, the very lowest part of the back, we have over double the range of movement in the spine backwards as forwards. Now, most people don't believe that's true, but I assure you it is. So anyway, that's one thing. And the second thing is in respect of deadlifting, something I've had a lot of experience with myself in the past, um, you would be very well served in learning how to stretch your lower back muscles out. Now, most people, when they do forward bending, especially if they've got good hamstring flexibility, it's actually very hard for them to stretch the lumbar spine. But we do have some excellent exercises on our Overcome Back Pain um, video program. And I, I don't know whether those exercises are on YouTube. They're probably not, but basically I can describe them. They're a piece of cake to do. What you do is you sit down on the floor and the, the, the best way to do this is to hold your feet and keep your knees bent. So it looks like a very badly done forward bend, right? Yeah. And so with the, with the knees bent and you have your, um, your, your tummy will be very close to the top of your thighs or maybe even on the top of your thighs, what you do is you hold your feet and then you try to straighten your legs, telling yourself you're trying to push your lower back backwards behind you, towards the wall behind you. And when you do that, the pelvis will tilt back and because you're holding your feet, the shoulders won't move. All that will happen is the lumbar spine will flex and it will feel amazingly good. Do be careful with it, though. You don't need much force in your legs. Um, most people who are flexible, and I assume you are flexible, they've got actually a pattern of forward bending which doesn't involve the lumbar spine because years of yoga classes, years of dance and gymnastics classes have told you that this is what a pike looks like, this is what forward bend looks like, hold your back straight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is all good when you're trying to make a particular shape with the body. But when you're deadlifting, you absolutely need to be able to stretch that tension out following the deadlifting session so that recovery is faster and so your chance of injuring yourself is lessened. That's all. Kit, you've exactly described, I think, what's been going on with me. Uh, I, I think I've got good hamstring length. And exactly mm. like you said, I've been doing a lot of yoga. I've taught my, my back to stay straight and erect mm -hmm. you know, whilst I bend forward. And I think mm. probably, uh, you know, I, I would never have considered this before you just mentioned it. But, yeah, the hamstring length is there. But like you say, mm. the lower uh, lumbar back is, is Well, well here's a, Ben, let, let, me, let me just, while I think of it, otherwise it'll go. Something else, you could try sitting on a chair. We've got a real basic exercise, but it's in, 
it's it's amazingly strong. You sit on a chair and you have your feet underneath your knees, so the knees are bent about 90 degrees. The normal way one sits on a chair. Then you lower yourself in between your knees on your hands until you can put your hands on the floor. Then you slowly let your arms bend until your back starts to bend, and that will happen at the point where you run out of hamstring flexibility so that your shoulders could be you know, well past your thighs at this point. And then you hold onto your ankles or the legs of the chair and you use your arm strength. You let the trunk go completely relaxed and don't use your tummy muscles either, otherwise they'll go into spasm. You keep everything as soft as possible. And you use just your arm strength to stretch the lower back. And that also is one of our key exercises for people with back problems, actually. Um, it can be as strong or as gentle as you wish. And once you've actually stretched the length into the muscles that you want, then you use your arms to lift yourself back up again. Don't lift yourself up with your back muscles. Now, that's just a, a quick thumbnail sketch, but that's an, another, another way, a slightly easier way of doing that floor exercise, which doesn't require you to apply any force through the legs. I see. Yeah, perfect. By the way, I just want to mention um, you, you very kindly uh, granted me access to one of your uh, your online training videos for backbends on Vimeo. And I just want to mention to our listeners that the quality of those videos is very high. And if, if they do want to go and check out your online products, they can find them on your website. And you've got a range of different products um, uh, for, for all different kinds of stretches. Um, is there anything you want to say about that? Um, I would only say that it was actually my association with uh, Coach Sommer that led to me bringing out that particular range of products. Um, but they are, in fact, all the key positions for divers and for gymnasts and actually for dancers too. Um, that is to say pancakes, so legs apart, forward bend with a straight back with full pelvic movement so that the tummy presses on the ground, not your forehead, and the back should be straight. Um, the full pike, I know you know what that looks like, but for, for the listeners that are not completely familiar, a full pike in gymnastics and then in diving, you're holding your heels, um, you're trying to pull your head along towards the top of your feet, the feet are pointed, and the whole body is jammed on the legs. Uh, let's see, that's pike, pancake, and, and of course from those two things, we also have a, a program called Master the Full Squat, and the combination of those three programs in time will give you side splits and front splits because Master the Squat also has some hip flexor exercises. And Master the Full Backbend, the program that you were talking about, also has the strongest of the hip flexor stretches for the reasons I gave. That is, in our view and our experience, the hip flexors are actually the key to backward bending. The hip flexors will unlock your spine. Sorry, I'm being speaking a bit too quickly. Loosening your hip flexors will have the effect of unlocking your spine because it takes the bend of a backward bend out of the lumbar spine and allows the rest of the vertebrae to become involved. But if the hip flexors are tight, and in particular psoas, and I would say that most of your listeners have never in their lives stretched psoas because rectus femoris, the outermost of the hip flexors, is so tight in most modern people, largely from sitting down, um, the hip flexors are so tight that you can't, or the outer hip flexor, rectus femoris, is so tight that most people have never actually um, got into extension far enough to stretch psoas. So there's, there's lurking massive muscle which actually attaches to the whole front of the lumbar spine on both sides, which has never been given a stretch in most people. So when you eventually do break through and can stretch psoas, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating this, the tension in your spinal muscles will just go through the floor in fact, I'd go further than that and say, that, and I've demonstrated this on workshops many times, 
if we meet sometime in the future, I will let you touch me in a, in a, in a scientific way. If you reach, if you if you feel my shoulders or arms or back muscles or even leg muscles when I'm standing up, they're completely soft. And and I exemplify this idea that we have of no unnecessary tension. Now I can apply a lot of force if I have to, but the thing is, unlike most people in your world who aren't well trained, I can let that tension go completely as soon as that necessity is gone. And we call this that cat, a cat-like quality, and that in our world is a very desirable quality, and it's extremely hard to get. So playing now, or well, pointing back to an earlier thread in our conversation where I said Olivia started a thread called range of movement and muscular tension, what's the relationship? There is no necessary relationship between those things unless you acquire your flexibility mindfully as an adult. And you have to be taught flexibility from that perspective. It's not about the range of movement that the exercise is creating in your body, it's actually about what's happening in your mind as you encounter the many unpleasant sensations in the body as you try to get more flexible. And no one teaches flexibility this way. And I should also add on that note, Ben, I teach in Buddhist monasteries. I'm one of the two invited Western teachers in two Malaysian monasteries. We normally teach the whole of December over there. And my contribution is exactly this mindful body work that is to say using your own body as the tool to uncover the resistance in your own mind and then the further tool of how to dissolve that resistance and the net result of that is the whole body is softer but there are some physical restrictions too that create that tension and you have to address those so the the one that we're talking about and what led me to make that last point about tension in the mind is that the hip flexors if they are tight will cause an anterior pelvic tilt when you're standing up and when you're in the load-bearing position. And all of the tension that you have in erector spinae and the paravertebrals, the muscles um, that run up and down the spine between the shoulder blades, which in most people are like rocks or at least very tender to touch, when you loosen so as properly for the first time, when you stand up after that exercise and you have someone palpate those spinal muscles, they will be soft. In other words, the tension in most people's spinal muscles and neck muscles too, by the way, they're just the extension of the spine, that is necessary tension because the body is having to hold itself up against gravity and against the opposite force of tight hip flexors. Once you loosen the tight hip flexors, the lumbar spine flattens slightly and that tension just vanishes. It's not necessary, my friend. Wow. That's amazing. Um, this is all new information to me. I hope it's new information to our listeners as well, because, you know, despite doing a lot of yoga, this is not the kind of thing I've heard before um, anywhere else. So it's really exciting no. to hear these kind of explanations. Well, I, I can tell you, and I hope I don't sound like I'm blowing my own trumpet here. Um, if, if I am blowing my own trumpet, I'm 64. I'm not going to be doing it that much longer. <laughs> Um, I've been a, a serious yoga student as well. I, that was my the next thing I went into after all those dance classes I did for a couple of years. But again, and I also should say I went to, I was a, I trained in a professional boxing gym um, between the ages of 28 and 30. I was an amateur boxer, but I was training in a professional gym and I was the only amateur in that um, gym. I then went off to Japan and I and I, I became what's called a living student, an uchideshi it's called in Japanese, a living student in a martial arts dojo, which I continued for about nearly 18 months, I think. Um, and there again, all of my teachers were perfectly flexible, you know, sit inside, sit after dinner to have a drink and that sort of thing. Um, I was hopelessly inflexible still at that point. It was actually in Japan that I discovered the first key to unlocking the body. 
But the reason I mention that is, and this is a truly, truly important thing, unless you're working with a teacher who acquired his or her flexibility as an adult, most people that teach stretching in the gymnastics and dance and the pole world cannot actually help an adult body to become flexible. They don't actually have the tools at their fingertips. And I can say in our system, because I've struggled with literally every millimetre of range of movement that I've now got in my body, although I have to say it's much easier now than it ever was before, um, because I didn't have any naturally loose parts of my body, not my hands, not my wrists, not my shoulders, nothing, in fact, ankles, nothing. I remember just to be able to do a full squat in bare feet, it took years of work for me to be able to do that. Now we can get people to do that in a, you know, a single hour in a workshop, but I know what the restrictions are now. That's the difference. And I know how to target exactly. When I look at someone trying to do something, and this is another thing that's unique to our system, I think, when we look at someone, and squat's a very good example, there are many, many different reasons why people can't do a full squat. There's many different reasons why people can't do a pike and why they can't do a pancake. And the, what you do is you look at the people, you ask them where they're feeling the restriction, and you actually look at the shape their bodies are making. And if you're any good at this stuff, you should be able to suggest something, one, two, three, try that, try that, try that. And that should make a tangible difference, not just a visual difference, an experiential difference to that person. And once, it's a bit like my friend Andy, once you've actually had this this veil lifted from your eyes, all of a sudden you look at this problem set completely differently. That You know, that you have started then and your progress is inevitable providing you keep going. Yes. Okay, I just want to refer to a couple of paragraphs I found in your book in the introduction. Sure. Um, if you don't mind me just um, reading them and then we can elaborate. It says, which, I wish which, to... before, before you start, which book I've written three? Oh, right. I beg your pardon. Yeah, Stretching and Flexibility. Oh, good. Okay, yep. I know it intimately. Okay. <laughs> um, we could talk about the other titles in a minute. Um, but this really stood out to me. Um, I wish to discuss now... Um, the aspect of stretching which is most problematic and the one about which the least is known but which may yet prove to be its most important dimension. In 1942, Wright claimed that character armoring, character armoring, mm. armoring was functionally identical with muscular hypertonia and that altering this tension altered the patient's emotional trauma. And a great many yes. schools of body work have elaborated the ways in which this might be brought about. Emotional states yeah. have their physical correlations, as everyone knows, but the idea that physical states, muscular and visceral, may be fundamentally con constitutive of emotion and an essential part of what we call rationality. Sorry, I'm struggling to read it smoothly. Um, anyway, I, I, you obviously know the, the piece I'm referring to. Could you elaborate on that for us? Well, it, it, I, I, yeah, I must have been, I must have been a bit further ahead of the curve than I thought I was. What was the date of publication of that book? Was it 1992? That's a long time ago. This is one that my friend lent me. I think it was the first edition. Um, 1999, it says. Oh, 99. Okay, so not that long ago. 18 years ago. Well, I can tell you, when I, when I wrote those words, um, I mean, I'm, I'm a researcher by training and also by inclination. I had read everything that I could get my hands on. Um, and those concepts as stated there were new at the time but the basis of them that is to say Wilhelm Reich's work 
um, he said neurosis is identical to muscular tension. And in my experience, that is absolutely accurate. Now, let me do a bit of a thought experiment here. We, there's a word in German, Gedanken, which is a, I'm, a, I'm a professionally trained, I suppose you'd say, professional philosopher. And logic was the my research area for many years. I did master's research and I, I won an Australian postgraduate research award to do, I think it was, I had three and a half years fully funded, which I stretched out to five years. It was a, a dream period of time. I did a massive amount of work in this area following that. But the point is this. Wilhelm was so far ahead of the curve, as you said, it was in 1942. He is credited in all the historians who look back on him, his role in this period. There's over 200 and probably it's closer to 300 schools of bodywork on the planet now. When I say bodywork, I'm talking about um, rolfing and you know chiropractic and osteopathy and all those sorts of things. They're all bodywork schools, also all the schools of massage, the kinesiology schools and blah, blah, blah. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. But they're all based on a single premise, which is what um, Wilhelm is identifying here. The premise is that by changing something on the surface or um, below the surface of the outside of the body, that you're actually changing something on the inside of the body. Oriental medicine, acupuncture, and even herbal medicines, all based incidentally on exactly the same perspective. Something on the outside changes something on the inside. But Wilhelm's insight that neurosis was identical, identical, that's a very strong word, um, and in German it's even stronger. Neurosis is identical to muscular tension, is absolutely accurate. Now here's the thought, here's the thought experiment. It's one of my favorites, some of you may have heard it. Let's say you're at home with your loved one, you've had a glass of wine, had a lovely dinner, um, and let's say the flavor of romance is in the air. You're feeling loving towards your partner. And the phone rings, and still, just the, the sound of the phone is nothing, it's just the sound. And you walk over to the phone, and still you're feeling in that loving mood, and everyone knows exactly what feeling that feels like in the body. You pick up the phone, and you suddenly realize that it's your hated father-in-law. Now, in the instant of recognizing the person's voice, they haven't actually said anything yet. In the instant of recognizing who's on the other end of the telephone, your body instantly organizes itself into hated father-in-law mode. Don't you find that interesting? And the thing yeah. is, in this in, in this instance, your father-in-law is actually in an institution in Helsinki. I mean, he's no danger to you whatsoever, but you absolutely loathe him and for all the things he did in the past, blah, blah, blah. And all of those memories and the emotional and physical response to the sound of his voice are all in your body, waiting to be brought forth by the yes. idea of your father-in-law. Okay, so that's that's on one side of the coin. Here's the other side of the coin. You walk into, you bump into a friend in the street and your friend is with his partner and the partner has a new baby. She pulls the new baby out of the pram so you can hold the baby. And you hold the baby, this, this delicate tiny creature who's only a week or two old, and you look into this face, you gaze into this exquisite face that is looking at you completely openly it's, and all of that information is flowing rapidly backwards and forth and you feel your chest softening and you feel an experience which you might call love or something, whatever it is. All the positive emotions are a softening of your habitual way of holding yourself and all the negative emotions are particular forms of reinforcing your fundamental pattern. 
When we talk about one's emotional self, and a brilliant man called Antonio Damasio wrote a book exploring this from the neurophysiologist's perspective. The book's called Descartes' Error. It's a, it's a serious read. Uh, I don't recommend it unless you're really interested in the subject. But he was able to show for the first time back in, well, not that long ago, 1990-something or other. can't remember. It's, anyway, the, the reference is in the later editions of my books because it was the most influential book I read that year. But he was able to show chemically and neurophysiologically that emotions are not properties of the brain as everyone, including most philosophers, had thought that they were. They are actual physical properties. They are respective levels of neurotransmitters, their tension in the internal organs, their tension in the external muscles of the body. And in fact, on that note, uh, most people are not aware of this, but I assure you this is accurate anatomically. Your internal organs have over twice the connections neurally internally than your all the skin and all the muscle, all the ligaments and all the tendons of your body have and your bone structure. Over double the innovation of, the, of what most people consider to be the body. Mm. And the reason is, the reason is, and again, this is where the, re, the convergence in the research is so exciting. You know that old, well, it's a kind of pejorative expression, this folk idea of butterflies in the stomach? Yeah. Well... Endoscopy has shown that when someone is feeling anxious, their stomach lining, which when the stomach is empty, is probably half to three quarters of an inch thick of muscle, that muscle is actually fibrillating, it's actually vibrating. And butterflies in the stomach is absolutely the best description of it. And that is actually what's happening. And this is the thing, Ben, this is not obvious. When someone is anxious, the mind will come up with the reason why they're anxious. I'm anxious because I'm worried about um, the poor in Bangladesh or I'm worried about um, Donald Trump in America or blah, blah, whatever it is that you're worried about. But the fact is, it is a physical event first. And as my Gedanken with the hated father-in-law um, um, idea has suggested, an idea can create that physical response in the body, but the physical response in the body creates the idea in the mind as well. And it can happen either way or both together. Now, what's the connection to flexibility? Well, the connection is a very simple one. The vast majority of people's reflexes, and, and incidentally, reflex is a very important word to use here because the discomfort and the pain and the resistance of stretching is nothing more than a habit of holding yourself a certain way. And when you push past the habitual point, it's actually the fight or flight mechanism which stops you going further. That's why people get anxious. They get sweaty. Their core temperature goes up when they're stretching hard. That's the reason. And now I'm tying it back to this current idea with, with the relationship to the mind. Your idea of yourself is just another habit. And, the, and Buddhism is extremely eloquent and clear on this, and we can perhaps dip into that another time. But your idea of yourself, and this is the key thing from our point of view, it is not accurate. You believe you have certain capacities. In the workshop situation, you suddenly find that those ideas are in complete error. What then happens? Well, you get this discombobulation. You get this, holy shit, well, I've been, if I've been wrong about something as... I've been so sure that I couldn't touch my toes, and look, now I've got my hands on the floor. If I'm wrong about that, what else am I wrong about? But not in a negative way, in an exciting way. It opens the door. 
However, yeah. and this this goes back to what you we were talking about earlier in our conversation, we cannot will ourselves consciously to change that. That's the key thing that's missing from most discussion on, uh, well, I have heard many people say, oh, look, the mind controls everything. And at, at a superficial level of understanding, that is accurate. But I can tell you, none of the people that talk about those kinds of things have any of the tools to actually connect to that part of the mind that is controlling the program. What we're doing when we stretch, and this also is gold, and you won't have heard this anywhere else, we are simply using the muscles, tendons, ligaments, and sensations in the body to remake the map of what the mind thinks the body is capable of. It has nothing whatsoever to do with lengthening muscles. That is the end result. That is the technique we use, but it's not that. It's actually the brain that changes the actual experience of being in an elongated position simply changes the map in that moment. And if you repeat it a few times, the map is permanently changed. Full stop. Wow, that's big. And so the, <laughs> the knock-on effects of um, is going to be profound in people's lives. So you're saying by doing this work on their physiology, it has the, the knock-on effects on their, their brain mapping. By the way, I don't exactly know what that means, but... And then okay, that has well, the knock-on effects okay. of their emotional and, okay. and the, yeah. I'll, I'll stop there and I'll try and explain. I, I understand. I'm I'm really I'm I'm if you like skating over chasms in the glacier here. Mm -hmm. um, the map. Okay, I'll do a little bit of basic neurophysiology here, and this is um, not my idea. Now, this is actually conventional neurophysiology has been around for nearly a hundred years. There are sense organs in the body called proprioceptors. That's where we get the word proprioception from. But proprioceptors are little sense organs um, in, in muscles, in skin, um, and in tendons, and muscular tendons, intersections in particular, um, and various other places around the body. And what they, there's two different systems that run in parallel. And this is actually critical for acrobatics too, by the way. I'll, I'll, if I remember, I'll get around to making that point. Both systems actually control your flexibility. One controls the dynamic flexibility you have, and those proprioceptors, those sense organs, are both time and position dependent. What that means is they not only they not only sense the distance between themselves and their neighbour, and hence the idea of how long the muscle is, but the speed with, that was used to get into that position. Now, when you're um, studying yoga or doing static um, stretching exercises, what you're working on is the other system, which is only position dependent. I've worked with plenty of yogis who have perfect flexibility, who can sit in side splits and front splits, and who could not do a front kick to save their lives. They simply have not trained the speed dimension. Now, for someone in your business, you have to train both. And luckily for you, your activity, the activity of, of acrobatics, actually trains in the second dimension the, the or the second system. The safest way to become flexible is to do the sort of things that we do where you can actually control the end point of the movement, even though we also endorse ballistic stretching, but that's a conversation for another time. Um, but the safest way to become flexible and the way that is also the way that will give you the greatest amount of strength at the end of the range of movement is to develop your flexibility using some sort of contraction method, some sort of active um, movement at the end of the range of movement and so on, but all fully controlled. Now, I haven't made this point probably very clear. What was not obvious in what I was talking about before about reflexive responses, and let's go back to the hated father-in-law example as a, as a, you know, a limit example of, 
of reflex responses. You haven't actually seen the uncle for 20 years, but it, notice it makes no difference. And he's, he's in an institution. He can't get out. He's in there for life. Makes no difference. What happens when you make your body more supple and softer as an adult is you simply give yourself more options in terms of that initial reflexive response. It's not obvious, but when you become more attuned to what's happening inside your own body, and as somebody who's struggled with anger for a lot of my life, I can tell you I know this stuff intimately, before you become angry or before you um, bring forth the hated father-in-law response, if you're quick enough to catch it, your body literally reorganizes itself internally into that mode. And if you're quick enough to catch it, you can feel it doing that. It has done it many times before. That's why we call it the reflex. And it's expert at doing it, as anyone who you know, has anger as a problem will know. So what becoming more flexible does, first it connects you to the sensations inside the body because of the, the approach that we use to become flexible. Secondly, you're more aware of what's going on inside your body. And thirdly, this is the gold, you become aware that that change is happening you relax your tummy completely because in the case of anger, for example, or in the case of hate in the father-in-law, it's not possible to experience either of those emotions if your tummy is completely relaxed. It's just not possible. It will actually interrupt the reflexive process of becoming angry or starting to hate something or someone. Mm. So you, re you let the tummy relax completely and all of a sudden you have done what's called in spiritual work, introduced a pause. So the reflexive movement to becoming angry or to yelling out something to the father-in-law, that has been interrupted, to use a computer term. And because it's been interrupted and because you're aware of what's going on inside your body, by definition, you're actually in the moment. And I'll talk about that a bit more later because the key thing here, and this is a key idea from Buddhism, not just Buddhism, but many um, much work in mindfulness at the, that's current in the world today, the body exists in constantly unfolding time. The body can't experience the future, doesn't remember the past. The mind, on the other hand, exists only in the future or the past. Now, that might sound like that's an impossible thing to say because most people will tell you when they're thinking or they're talking to you that I'm thinking now. But if you actually analyze your thinking, and that's what meditation is supposed to give you the capacity to do, to actually watch your thoughts unfolding, the vast majority of thoughts are about things in the past that have hurt you or disturbed you or, or which you liked or people are dreaming about a future which will never happen or never come. So the, the, so the, 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 I mean, just let me go with that assertion for a moment. I can, I can defend it later if necessary. But the key point is this. When you're working with the physical body, you are not in the future and you're not in the past. You are in the constantly unfolding present. And the more familiar you become with the constantly unfolding present, the more options you have in every moment in your life. And that is why becoming flexible as an adult using this approach literally unlocks you from the prison of your own creation. Yes, and that again, that perfectly matches my own experience. Um, it was relatively recently as an adult that I be began getting involved in physical activities and fitness and hand balancing and, you know, so on, acrobatics. Uh, before that, I was very computer-based and was doing a lot of website work and things like that, and I was very in my head. And, I, and for a few years, I kind of disappeared down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories and 9-11 <laughs> and inside job and, and things like that, yeah. which is all very interesting. And... Um, 
and and I still find it interesting now. But what, what there was a turning point in my life where I realised I was living very much in my head, exactly as you've yes. just said. And I, yes. I I kind of had to eventually admit to myself that I wasn't very happy and wasn't really having much fun. And what I, I completely changed my lifestyle. I kind of let go of a lot of that uh, way of life and started involving myself in you know fun activities and going to handstand classes and going to yoga and began weightlifting and and in in other words to cut a long story short my i became live i started living in my body instead of living in my head and although i i probably wouldn't have been able to articulate it in the way you you just did that was exactly my experience i was now present and much happier and wasn't concerned with things that had previously concerned me and life you know became much simpler and much more enjoyable um so uh, that, everything you just said completely matches yeah yeah i understand um completely it parallels my own life um the state of relaxation that i enjoy now on a daily basis is um well to be honest it's just such a relief um it, and that's what that's why i use language like releasing yourself from a prison of your own making no one does this voluntarily um, it, it is it is just a habit, but the habits, mental habits in particular, have enormous momentum, and basically it's like it's like in in Olympic lifting, they talk about greasing the groove, meaning if your let's say your snatch is a bit weak, um, and you know um, snatching a weight off the floor and then squatting into a full squat position underneath it with that weight balanced overhead at arm's length that is a <clears throat> that is a coordination exercise of an extremely high degree um you need to grease that groove you need to that pattern has to be so perfectly in your body that even if you miss the lift slightly or you get slightly out of position nonetheless the incredible coordinated activity that you've practiced 10,000 times before will manifest and there's a good chance you'll actually be able to hold that overhead. Um, mental mental habits are exactly the same. The majority of people's self-talk is negative unless they're doing the kinds of things that we do. And I don't want to give your audience in any way the idea that I'm trying to sell them some kind of Anthony Robbins be all you can be course, you know, for which you've got to pay a shitload of money for. I'm not talking about anything like that. I'm talking about something that's real. Most people do not know what the feeling of having clothes on their body feels like because we simply don't pay attention to these things. Now, when your awareness increases and your capacity to focus concentrate increases all of a sudden the most ordinary things in daily life become utterly fascinating now does it mean that you could get lost sometimes in watching water come out of a tap yes i can honestly say that has happened to me but does it mean that you can't function does it mean that your brain is going to go to mush and that you won't be able to think properly or you won't remember things no not at all in fact if anything when you decrease tension in your body and you get rid of what i call the static on the antenna um, everything actually functions much better. Yes, exactly. I don't know how you feel about this topic, Kit, um, because I know some people are sceptical of it, but law of attraction is something I've really become interested in lately. And basically the idea that if you put yourself in a state of mind where you feel a certain way that, that, that matches the things that you want to manifest in life, then you're going to be able to bring them about um, because you're going to be a match to what it is you want. Um, have you got any thoughts on that? 
I, to be honest, uh, um, Ben, I don't have any thoughts on that because the way my mind is wired these days, um, I can honestly say I've never actually thought about that. I've never actually had that thought or that idea has never been suggested to me before. I would say from my perspective, given what I know and what I've experienced in my own life, that as the muscular tension, and remember harking back to Wilhelm and his, and his assertion that neurosis was identical to muscular tension, um, and he was just talking about the most extreme form of it, the majority of people that we know hold muscular tension, they find their life unsatisfactory in many ways, but not enough to actually be disturbed by it, not enough to actually change anything in it, not like you did. Um, when you change that, you actually change everything. What you're doing, in fact, is... Well, he spoke... I, I wanted to pick up on an earlier point that will explain the point I'm trying to make. He spoke about character armour. Now, what he meant was, and he, he elaborates this in his book, he said that the child, the newborn baby, has no armour of any kind. There is no... There's actually no perception in the, in the infant's mind of the difference between inside and outside. But without getting into that philosophical... Um, potential rabbit hole it's actually the injuries and the insults and the traumas that the child experiences that becomes the physical resistance in their body that he is talking about that's the character armor but it's more than that the your the way you hold your head on your shoulders the way you mobilize the muscles in your face the way you stand when you're addressing someone else or looking at someone else or talking to someone else or listening to someone else, all of those things also are acquired and uniquely you. They are patterns of holding yourself. As you become more flexible and more supple and softer, the barrier between your heart and the world around you simply softens. That's all. And so... The law of attraction, as you've described it, in my view, is a very small part of a much, much larger movement from being rigid and defensive to being open and aware and available. Yes, perfectly said. Which, of course, which of course brings about exactly what the law of attraction describes. Mm, yes, yes. I, I think there's a lot of overlap between the two ideas and of, uh, we could, um, I'm sure we could talk for a long time about uh, those mm. topics i tell you what i'll just shift gear slightly um mm. i want to ask you about the kinds of people that typically come to you to your workshops is it certain types that that, that, that typically are attracted to your work or what range no, of people it, it, is it well actually they're people that can read um that might sound like yeah. a very negative thing to say um but our system is it, it has a foundation of, of conceptual structures, conceptual schemas that are elaborate and interesting and complex. And I'll just I'll, I'll say this will probably illustrate it the best way. I taught in America for 10 years. I ran hundreds of workshops in the US. And I don't think I think we've got three members on the forum. We might have 30. I could be exaggerating out of the 2000 odd uh, who are American. The rest, the vast majority, are from the UK and from Europe, and for many people who are on the forums, English is not even their first language, but they are all people who are attracted to the world of ideas, not just ideas in a, in a cerebral abstract sense, but embodied ideas is probably the best way to describe our work. And so if I were asked to describe 
um, who comes along to our workshop. It's actually someone who at some level in in themselves is interested in changing themselves. Now, they may have absolutely no idea what they're trying to change themselves into, and I actually think that's a really good thing. Um, we, we think we know so many things about ourselves, but in fact most of the things we know about ourselves are actually bogus or, or as I said before, just a set of habits which get reinforced by, I mean, I've got, a, I've got a driver's license just like you do probably, and the driver's license has a photograph of me and it looks a bit like me, and there's a description on it which says um, my address and it gives me a driver's license number. And so the whole of the structure of our society is actually about reinforcing the uniqueness and the boundaries between myself and the rest of the, the members of the, the population that we're among. But it's not actually real. That's the point. And because, and I mean, look, if I say this, I hope because many of your um, many of your listeners are English, but when we talk about the stiff upper lip in uh, of the British character, what we're talking about is a massive amount of jaw tension and a massive amount of neck tension, aren't we? And the majority of English people, if you watch them on the buses or the tube, they manifest this habitually. They're not thinking about it. They look slightly angry or upset or preoccupied with something, but they're not actually angry or upset. It's simply a habitual way of holding themselves. Now, most people over the age of 40, you can read their character in their faces with accuracy, can't you? Mm-hmm. Well, don't, don't you find that interesting? I mean, yes. we, become, we become how we think. And so I guess this gets back to the law of attractions. If you really want to change your experience of this life, you must change what you're doing with your body and you must change the habitual patterns of your thinking. That's all. It's not a negative. I mean, I don't regard those things in any way, you know, super challenging or anything. I just find, I find them exciting. The idea of changing and growing, I, I can't honestly conceive of anything that's more interesting than that um, and so that's my whole life's work so the kind of people that come to our workshops they could be coming we've had lots of pole dancers for example come to our workshops they might be a pole teacher or a performer um, and they know that lots of their girls get injuries particularly shoulder injuries and um, hip injuries or hamstring injuries and so on groin injuries and so they're coming along and their their interest, at least in the beginning, is purely in the mechanics of the system. And, of course, we are perfectly happy to teach people at that level um, and many people that's all they want. And so they could be a, a struggling young, you know, they're, they're doing men's gymnastic strength training, let's say, or um, or they're in your world, they're an, they're an acrobat and they're trying to do a particular move and they don't have that range of movement in the, in the thoracic spine, let's say. I mean, I'm I'm pulling this out of the air, but you know what I mean. So people come along with a particular idea of what it is that they want to get out of the workshop. And we have lots of different workshops, remember. We've got stretch therapy for performance, which is the five big poses that we talked about, you know, half an hour ago, pancake, pike, full back bend and so on. But the first workshop that we run, which is actually my favorite one, is just called Into the Stretch. And that is for anyone, any age, as long as you can walk up the stairs into the into the hall where we're teaching – you can be our student. And those people, they're the ones who have the most extraordinary breakthroughs usually. Then we also have our teacher training scheme. We run that in, we're running part A in London this year. We're also running part A and part B in my hometown here in Australia this year. So they're the three basic workshops that we run. Are we also another workshop that I've run in quite a few places called Deep Wellbeing, which is much more on the uh, meditation, relaxation side of things where... I go through what are called, the, traditionally the Buddha spoke of the four postures of meditation and they're walking, standing, 
moving and sitting, which, of course, pretty much um, accounts for all of life. That That is the deeper meaning of it, meaning that we should be meditating or being aware at the very least at all times. But anyway, that's a whole another conversation to have. So we run those workshops sometimes too, but they're not... I don't push those much because of the work that I do in the in the monasteries in in Malaysia. I figure that by the time I taught four weeks continuously there, I really am done on that side of things. Uh, so the main things that we do are the into the stretch workshop. We have a second one called deeper into the stretch, which is for someone who wants to, as the name suggests, just go deeper in the work. And those two are actually prerequisites for doing our teacher training. And then we have the one-week workshop, Part A, on teacher training. And then there's a second part. But anyone who does the Part A, we want them to go out and teach immediately. We we don't set barriers in front of people, insurmountable barriers. We have to do 3,000 hours of you know yoga to become a teacher of it. In fact, what we do, we'll do a week, and then we kick. It's like kicking the uh, the the fledglings out of the nest. We want you to go and make all your own mistakes and. You know, we've got forums where you can post questions about problems that you're having or ideas for classes or all that kind of thing. And then part B is you bring that experience back into a workshop with, that is now full of experienced teachers. And they are the most exciting and the most interesting workshops we run because we honestly, we have no idea what's going to happen and what's going to come out. And we are also helping those teachers, those new teachers, to enhance their teaching style. We don't actually teach teaching style. We have a syllabus that we hope that people will teach, but the development of your own voice, your own style, your own way of doing the work, this is something we encourage. We don't limit anybody in any way at all. We want people to be creative. In fact, on that note, let me just say one more thing and then I'll stop for a while because we've been talking for an over an hour. Um, Our learning system is an explicitly open learning system, meaning... If you're a yoga teacher and you want to take all of our techniques and use them in your yoga school and call what you teach yoga, that is, you do it with 100% support from us. Um, If you want to teach our system and label it that way, we'll advertise your classes for you. Um, You can use our brand and all that kind of thing. And we don't charge you a penny for that. Open system means open. And by that, I mean we have completely permeable boundaries. If I were to come to one of your workshops, for example, Ben, and I saw something that looked like it would be useful in my work, I guarantee you, man, I'd take it from you. We'd be using it next week. That's how we work, and we want everyone else to work that way too. The idea of protecting a little bit of intellectual property is is tragic and pathetic, but unfortunately, it does infect the movement world to a great degree these days. We We won't have a bar of it. I mean, I'm 64. My, my, I apply something I call the 50-year test. The 50-year test is a very simple test. It's, uh, let's say you've got a decision to make. I say, well, who'll give a fuck about this in 50 years? And the answer is no one. Yeah. So then, once, you've passed the, once it's passed the 50-year test, we say, okay, well, that's not relevant. So what is the decision? What course of action can we take that will yield the greatest benefit for the greatest number of people involved in whatever it is that we're talking about? And that becomes the decision criteria, that collection of things. That's how we work. We want people to take our work. We want people to contribute their ideas to our work. And that's the reason why this system has just expanded and grown and and deepened in its understanding of this problem set hugely in the last 25 years. Yes. And I, I, I'm so grateful, honestly. I mean, I'm not in I'm not in control of it anymore. I'm just basically one of the spokespeople for it. Olivia's another one, and a couple of other people as well. 
Um, and we're it's like like riding a galloping horse. We're we're just having this this fantastic time. Um, we're not actually sure where we're going with it, but it, it's a ride. I can tell you. That's really wonderful, Kit. And listening to you talk, I, I wasn't really particularly aware of the, the, the programs you offer, but listening to you describe them, and I know my friend who attended one of your workshops is also doing your teacher training. I'm not sure oh, when or, or where. It may be in England or, or it may yeah, be somewhere in, in else. England. I'm sure it'll be in England, and I think it'll probably be um, September, somewhere around there. There, Anyway, all those details are on our website, and you'll probably put a link to the website. Um, anyway, if anyone Googles me, I'll be I'll be the top hit on that page. So we don't need to do any Google um, ranking stuff or any. What, what, are the, what do you do as a – how do you get your Google rankings up? It's got a special term. I can't remember. Oh, SEO. Yeah, SEO. We don't, we don't we don't do any of that bullshit we don't need to because what we what we offer is sufficiently unique that we're on the first page anyway or is the, on the first line on the first page which is i must say i have to say it's it's gratifying yes it's wonderful when you do inspired work it, it tends to stand you know flourish on its own doesn't it you know without uh, needing to force it too much with marketing well, we don't we don't do any marketing. I mean, we have a website, and uh, I mean, an, we, you could, if you're a cynic, you could consider a conversation like this to be marketing too. And I'm and I won't say that it doesn't service in that way. I mean, we have met people on workshops who've only ever watched my YouTube clips, um, had their bodies transformed by following, you know, twenty of the YouTube clips. It's all free. They turn up to a workshop because they've been listening to me, you know, talk about X or Y or Z on these YouTube clips for months or years and they actually want to actually hear the original I've had so many, this is yeah. this is really funny i've had so many people come up to me ben it's just a crack up you sound just like your videos <laughs> and i'm thinking well that's interesting how would it be if you met someone who was a presenter on youtube or vimeo or whatever and they actually were completely different to what you'd seen on their videos that would be odd <laughs> but anyway I found that very funny the first few times. Yes, yeah, it, it's funny, even even uh, with uh, people like us that are fairly niche, you know, um, yeah. uh, uh, public figures in a, you know, in a, in, a, in a small community. People sometimes can still act a little bit starstruck when they sort of meet you in person yeah. after seeing your videos. <laughs> I used to do online yeah. guitar lessons when I was younger. I was a guitarist and. Um, I started an online guitar lesson website, and I, I, I oh, exactly the same as you were saying. I put a lot of my content out there for free. There was a lot of stuff on YouTube, and there were some products that were for sale on the website as well. And um, the same as you, I was never concerned with people ripping it off or copying it, or because no, it, no, it's nothing. Let me, it's nothing you can control anyway, you know. No. And, and look, let me let me just I'll interject there if I may. I know I'm a terrible interrupter. Olivia's always telling me off for doing that. But here's a very exciting thing. There's a guy called Bill Riley. He's worth looking up. Bill Riley runs the biggest um, computer book publishing company in the world. He's in the Fortune 500 list. He took a struggling company, I think, six or seven years ago. And by doing just one thing, he turned this company into this book company that turns over something like, I think it's five or $600 million a year. Incredibly successful. Do you know what he did? This is just amazing. He removed copyright from all of their material. Right. And the, the incredible. And what he said was, and as soon as I read this, I said, we're going to do exactly the same. I should, should just mention this. Our Vimeo programs, um, once you buy them, you own them. You can use them on whatever devices you want, there's no copy protection, there's none of that nonsense. What Bill O'Reilly, Bill Riley, I should say, realised, he said everyone who rips off a copy of 
this disc or this program or this whatever. He said, that's free advertising for us. And I thought, that is genius. We don't spend any money on advertising. He doesn't either. He is just simply known as the preeminent publisher of computing books, and he's rolling in it. Yeah. And he sound, in his interview, he sounded like a fantastic guy. Now, I have to say, we, Olivia and I, are not rolling in it by any means. Um, but we're also similarly riding this wave or this horse, I like to say, um, and it is, it's a fantastic experience. And the people that we meet, too, and the work that we do on the workshops, that is elevating. And, and just let me try and explain what I mean by that. You can hear a certain level of excitement in my voice as we're talking to each other, I imagine, and it's it's probably obvious that I'm really enthusiastic about the work that I do. But when I'm actually teaching a workshop, my entire system ramps itself up to a different level. There's actually different things happen in me and different things get transmitted in a teaching sense, body to body, human to human, when I'm teaching and I find myself saying things and thinking things and uttering those things that I've honestly never said before. Now, my apprentice, Dave Wardman, who now runs a, a site called Physical Alchemy, and that's worth um, looking into. He's a fantastic guy, and he was my apprentice for seven years. He, last year or the year before, wrote to me and he said, listen, you've got to be teaching more workshops, not less. And I said, oh, come on, man, you're going to kill me. And, he, and I said, why? And he said, because when you're teaching a workshop, it's the energetic state that you get lifted to. And it's, it's the, you must know this yourself from, from your own work. When you're in a room full of enthusiastic people where amazing things are happening, everything just gets lifted. No one ever sits around in a workshop and talks about their problems. It's just the opposite. It's all the opportunities that all of a sudden people can see. But what I'm talking about for, for myself personally is that my whole system runs finer and better when I'm teaching. And I'm, I'm, I'm honestly creating more things faster when I do that work than when I sit behind a computer and say to myself, okay, I'm going to write an article now. It's just something different happened. And it's you know, without the without having the students, I couldn't do any of those things, and that's why I'm so grateful. And I always bow to my students at the end of a class or a workshop for that reason, because honestly, without students, there wouldn't be teachers, and vice versa. And it's it's such an immensely privileged position to have, you know. And it's ephemeral; it's going to be over in five or ten years. I won't be doing this forever. Yes, yes, I feel the same. I mean, even though I've only been teaching handstand workshops for less than a few years, you know, so you've been doing this kind of thing a lot longer than me. But I, I yeah, can but relate to that that sense of aliveness when you're when you're in a room for the people full of people and everybody's yeah. excited. There is a, an aliveness in that. I know. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, what, I mean, I, I think to myself, what I would not rather actually be doing anything right now. And so, most people think of their work as work. Um, that is not my experience of presenting a workshop. I, I go into it, I'm excited, I, I have no idea what's going to happen, I don't know who I'm going to meet. Um, there'll be all sorts of connections made, all sorts of interesting things will be talked about, experiences will be had and so on. I mean, look, it's unique. It's like it's almost like um, I, can, I can imagine, I've never been a, a performer in the way that, say, someone who's a singer or a guitarist has been a performer, but I can see that... There would be many similarities in those things. The expectation that the audience has of you lifts you. Um, and, you know, I know many performers who will tell you they cannot do. I met John McLaughlin once, for example. He's a, an amazing guitarist. I know, I know you'll know of his work. Um, and he's a long-term meditator as well. I've been meditating for about 30 years, and I think he's been meditating for longer than I have. 
Um, but he also ex expressed the same thing, the reason. He's older than I am, but the reason why he's still on the road now and does lots of concerts every year is exactly the same thing for him. That is the the unalloyed experience of being fully present and having to perform, which lifts him out of his normal state too. And I thought, yeah, look, man, I understand exactly what you mean, even though, you know, what we do is nothing like it. That energetic dimension is identical. Absolutely. Kit, I want to be respectful of your time because we've been going a while, but um, just to kind of, if we begin the process of wrapping up, there's still a couple of things sure. that I just want to ask you. By all um, means. I mean, we could talk about physiology for a long time, but in terms of spirituality, who's been uh, most influential or what schools of thought have been most influential or what recommended reading um, books would you like to mention to people? Um, I would not. There are very few books that I would recommend. Um, and my reason for saying that is not because there aren't some excellent books out there. There are some <clears throat> truly sensational books out there. But... It will still be a mental activity. The activity of engaging with the ideas will keep you and anchor you in the realm of ideas. Now, I mean, I know plenty of people who have read, you know, 20 books on Zen, but have not actually sat down and learned to meditate. 20 books on Zen will give you a good historical and other understandings of Zen, and you, may, you might even be able to talk about it and sound as though you know what you're talking about, but that activity will not change you. My partner, Olivia, is eloquent on this subject. I mean, I've had I've had the benefit of some excellent teachers um, in my life, and I would recommend if you do come across a, a good teacher to latch onto them um, as, as hard as you can. They're few and far between. There's a lot of charlatans out there. Um, but she said, I'm only interested in teachings that will help me to become a better human being. And I thought, that is, that's remarkably deep. I mean, by that I mean, look, I'll just um, mention a very famous Tibetan um, writer and Rinpoche, he's dead now, Chogram Chumpa Rinpoche, who wrote half a dozen extraordinary books. Uh, he died at the age of 47. Um, he was a tantric, tantric yogi of enormous scope. He wrote a book called Spiritual Materialism, in which he described, he said, the West, and he was teaching in San Francisco, so he was right in the thick of it. He said, the West is a spiritual supermarket. There are gurus on every corner claiming to teach literally everything that can be taught in the spiritual world. But he said, spiritual materialism is where you wear the right robes, you chant the right chants, you, you know, burn the right incense, um, and do all the things that the, the, on the surface that that the practice itself requires, and yet you are not changed yourself internally at all. And so, in order to avoid falling deliberately or inadvertently into the trap of spiritual materialism, you need to develop a sitting practice, and that means you need to be able to sit on your own and by yourself. Now, a lot of people will say, A, they don't have the time, or B, they don't know how to do it, or they're not flexible enough to sit um, cross-legged or whatever. But I've got um, some YouTube clips that will help you in that regard. I've got one that will show you how to sit in the full lotus pose if you really want to do that. But, but I make the point in that video of saying that for the vast majority of people, learning how to meditate while sitting in a chair will serve them a lot better than, than um, coping with aching knees and you know a sore back and feeling like someone's trying to stab you in between the shoulder blades. Those things, although it's true that, that pain can be a meditation object, and we can talk about this another time because it's a big, a big subject, 
while that is true, better, in my view, is to be able to sit comfortably and be able to do the things that you're meant to be doing when you meditate. And that's not just, you know, concentrating on the pain sensation. It is actually, there are specific uh, tasks to do when you meditate. And it is the repetitive doing of those tasks and the gaining of insight that in time comes from those repetitive, relatively mundane tasks where the goal of meditation can be mined. I won't say any more on that. Perhaps we can talk about that another time. Um, but I wouldn't recommend books, but what I would recommend is doing a free meditation class with some teacher. There's, there will be plenty of them in London. Um, there are Vipassana or Samatha meditation centers all around the place. Tibetans concentrate. They teach Samatha or what they call calm abiding meditation. Um, the Theravadans and the Mahayanans, they'll teach you something called Vipassana, V-I-P-A-S-S-A-N-A. Um, the form of meditation that I have some expertise in is called samatha. That's more the Tibetan side of things. But the Buddha spoke of it in Sutra. He said the bird of meditation needs two wings to fly. And he, he characterized all seekers into one of four. And there are those who are naturally inclined and gifted towards Vipassana, those who are naturally inclined and gifted towards samatha, those who are inclined to both. And, and the fourth group is the Zen group those who have to, have to actually experience great doubt or suffering for a long period of time before finally the mind gives up and they make a what you might call a state change or a phase change. But that is a, that's a different approach. For most people, learning how to sit or how to do a lying meditation on my forums, for example, we've got 30 or 40 um, audible script, audible, what do you call them, oral scripts. You can just download MP3 files, they're free. Um, and you'll actually hear the the literal, the exact, well, they were recorded when I was teaching in these monasteries. You can actually hear the exact teachings um, that I was giving um, on those retreats, the two-week or three-week retreats, and they're all free. You can And you can get find all those things on my website. Wonderful. So the website that people need to go to is, just remind us. Very simple, stretchtherapy.net stretchtherapy.net Kit it's been so exciting to talk to you I've really enjoyed it you've delivered so much more than I was expecting and I'm sure it's been fascinating and illuminating for our audience so uh, sincerely thank you well look I, I know it's gone a bit long it's been an hour and a half you might care to break it up into two that's perfectly fine by me but also too I'll, I'll make this offer if um, your listeners have found what I think or what I've been saying is as interesting in any way or if they've got any questions. I once did a, a Reddit AMA, you know, Ask Me Anything. It was supposed to be only an hour long and it went on for seven hours. Now, I'm not offering that, but what I will do is if you find some of the questions interesting, by all means, um, we can do a follow-up um, talk at some time um, and you can ask me those questions and I will do my very best to stick to the point. Look, I need to explain something. I know that my talking style is discursive and I have asides and those asides have further asides and so on, but one of the fictions of modern times is that the explanation of something is going to be a relatively simple and quick thing. In my experience, if you want to get into something, the complexity multiplies. It doesn't go away. And we, we there is an expectation, and I think Facebook and the Internet in general and social media the, the developments in the U.S. as well, where some clown like Trump can become a, a president, 
um, there's been a, a dumbing down of discourse and there's an, an unreasonable, I think, expectation that when someone explains something, it should be concise, clear, short and to the point. Well, in respect of flexibility and in, in, in respect of meditation and some of the other things that we've been talking about, that will never happen. And it's, and it, and that, in my view, the fact that the explanations are necessarily complex and interesting and there are so many things that you have to explain in order to be able to explain just a simple point, um, I personally find that interesting and, I've, and I, it also explains to me why so many flexibility systems are woefully inadequate and why they simply don't work. It is because the things that I've been talking about today are simply not factored in. You're told to do exercise X, um, three sets of 10, hold each position for 30 seconds, then I'll move on to the next thing. If it were that simple, Ben, if that produced results, believe me, that's what I'd be teaching. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, actually, um, with regards to the complexity. And, uh, yeah, you've really made me think there because, yeah, I, I can see that I've got a tendency to um, perhaps oversimplify things. So, yeah, you've definitely provoke my my thoughts there kit well ben can i interrupt there don't be too hard on yourself because there's a there's a time and a place for simplification i mean if someone stops you on the side of the road and asks for the directions to the post office um you know a simple short concise answer is perfect for that but if somebody says look i've been struggling with my flexibility and my mobility work i've been trying to perfect this move and something blocking me it's locking me i don't know how to actually approach this problem then you can enter into a dialogue with that person, which which may be a lengthy one or it may be a relatively short one, and that opens up that channel of communication. And from that opening, all sorts of other things which are which might be tangential, they might not even be what the person was originally asking for. Those things can manifest by themselves, and this seems to me to be a realistic and natural process. Yes, of course. Yeah, simple but not too simple, and as as yes. complex as is necessary. Yes, I, I, I take exactly. the point. Yeah, um, perhaps what we could do, Kit, now that we've had a kind of um, you know an initial conversation and a, an overview of your sort of general philosophy and your career, perhaps we could uh, see what the the listeners have got to say and look at some of the comments, and we could come back on a specific topic at some time in the future and and have a, have a have a follow up conversation. How's that sound? I would love to, Ben, and I'd better see you at one of my workshops or there'll be trouble. Okay, that's, that's great. That's really exciting. <laughs> I'll look at your uh, website and look at the schedule and I'll, and I'll look, figure and, out. And look, and, and look, if you can't come to a workshop, don't worry, I was just kidding. Um, okay, uh, we, yeah. will, we, will be, we will be in London, um, and live, both Olivia and I, we have four days off normally between workshops, so we should definitely be able to catch up if you wish to you know, have a coffee or something. Oh, that would be great. That would be great. Yeah, I'll look at the schedule okay. and then it'd be great to make that happen. Yeah. Then, then that is what we will do, my friend. And thank you so much for today. It's been enjoyable for me too. Thank you, Kit. That's wonderful. Thanks for your time. We'll say bye for now and um, we'll speak again soon. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah.